Uh, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Rob. Uh, if uh, we've never met, it's so nice to, to have you here worshiping with us this morning. Uh, I'm on staff here at St. Pete's. I'm on the pastoral team, and I get to preach this morning. Usually I'm in the back, um, hiding in the back, but they let me out today, um, which is nice. Uh, if you've been following along with us uh, at all recently, you'll know that we've been going through a very long, slow series in the Gospel of Luke. Um, we've been planning to actually be in Luke again this morning, uh, but uh, Preston and I had just had a, we'd, we'd seen that we might just, it might be wise to take a break this week. So instead, this morning I want for us to consider uh, something different. Um, I want us to explore an important topic in the Christian faith. Uh, although I don't think it's one we've talked about very much here at St. Pete's, at least not recently. And that's the topic of perseverance. Perseverance. And specifically, I want to explore the question, how do we persevere in our faith? And not just persevere, because perseverance can sometimes have that, that sense of a raggedness and a, and a worn-downness to it. It's not just how do we persevere and survive in our faith, but how do we persevere and thrive? We could even say it like this, how do we stand firm in our faith? To explore this this morning, uh, we're going to return our attention to this passage Richard just read for us in Philippians. Uh, but before we get to the Philippians, I just want to give you a quick context of what's going on here. Philippians is a short little letter in the New Testament. It was a letter written by Paul and Timothy to a church they helped plant in the Roman city of Philippi. They'd planted this church 10 years beforehand. And when Paul and Timothy first arrived in this city, the people they met were with were this small little group of women down outside the city walls, down by a little river. But before too long, a church had started. It was meeting in the home of a local businesswoman, and it started to grow. People from all walks of life started to join this small new church. And after a little while, Paul and Timothy had to leave. Uh, they went on to other cities to plant other churches. But over the years, they stayed in touch. And they would come back and visit, and they would also write letters to them about what was happening in other parts of the world and what God was doing. And the little church would write back and say what God was doing in their own midst. And not just that, but they would share about things that they were struggling with too. And they would ask him for some help and advice. And things were exciting, and, and they were getting to write some of the highs of life with Jesus along the way, but following Jesus is not always easy. It, it wasn't then, and it isn't now either. Life gets difficult, and sometimes it can feel hard to keep following Jesus, especially when you live in a city that lives for something else. For the Christians in Philippi, they were in the middle of a society where everyone else was deeply engaged with public pagan worship. And on top of that, their city had a really strong allegiance to the city of Rome, so much so that a part of their civil life that everyone just did was that they would engage in festivals that worshipped and honoured Caesar. So in the midst of their society, the members of the church stood out like a sore thumb because they didn't do any of that. They wouldn't offer sacrifices at the pagan shrines and they wouldn't practice in the festivals that worshipped Caesar. They didn't engage in the religious life of their city and their neighbors saw that and they began to grow suspicious of them. Some of them were suffering in their business from the newfound faith because their clients didn't trust them. Others were experiencing abuse and social ostracism because they wouldn't join in the religious practices and social beliefs of their day. 
they were trying to figure out how to live their lives for Jesus in a city that lived for Caesar. And so they asked Paul, how do we persevere? How do we belong? We belong to Jesus. We follow him. But we're really feeling ragged and tired. We're feeling so much pressure to stop, to give up, just to go along with the crowd and fit in and to find a way to compromise what we believe about Jesus just so we can do and believe these other things. And we're feeling so much pressure just to give up on this whole Jesus thing altogether. How do we stand firm in our faith? That was the, the, the question that the Christians in Philippi were asking Paul. And I think it might be a question that some of us have wondered about too. Especially as we live as Christians in a city as secular as Vancouver. How do we stand firm in our faith? Let's turn together and see how Paul responds to this, this difficult but really important question. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, beginning verse 17. And it will be on the screen behind me too. Uh, and today I'm actually going to be using a, a different translation. I'm going to use the NIV, uh, just because it, I think it renders this passage a little bit more helpfully in the English than some other translations do. Um, sometimes different translations in English, they all say the same thing, but there's just some different nuances that can come through. And it can be helpful just to look at how other people have translated the same passage. Um, so if you picked up one of those gray Bibles on your way in, uh, it's going to read a little bit differently. There's nothing wrong with that. It's saying the same thing. I just chose to go with a different translation today. Um, but everything will be on the screen behind me. So let's read in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, that almost sounds a little narcissistic, doesn't it? Look at me. Look how I do it. Is Paul just this religious narcissist? Well, no. Of course you know I was going to say that. That's how I built it up. Uh, the church in Philippi were asking Paul how to stand firm because they, over the last 10 years that they had known him, they had seen him stand firm. When Paul first planted their church, they saw him get thrown in prison because he cast out a demon from a little girl. They'd heard Paul tell them about some of his other adventures, too. Now he had stood firm over all the years. In 2 Corinthians, Paul even explains to some other Christians some of the things and the hardships that he faced. We read in chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And now, I'm not sure about you, but if someone came up to me and said that to me of, yeah, because of my faith, I've been whipped and, and beaten. People once pummeled me with stones. I wouldn't know how to respond. That's just so far from my own experience of faith and from what I've witnessed. And personally, if I just got shipwrecked once, I would never get on a boat ever again. <laughs> Paul had stood firm through an absurd amount of adversity and hardship. If there was anyone who did know how to persevere in their faith, when things got really hard, it was Paul. And that's exactly why they're asking him. Because he's got the track record and the experience to actually back it up. Paul tells them, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He's saying, 
Look to the examples of those of us who are persevering. Keep your eyes on those around you who are holding fast to Jesus. Look to them too. And together, together, join together to imitate and follow their example. The thing is, though, not everyone who sets themselves up as an example and leader in the faith is someone that we should follow. They're not always someone that we should imitate. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Not every leader and teacher who comes around to tell us about Jesus is cut from the same stock. And he uses this incredibly strong language here, enemies of the cross. That's intense. What's that all about? Paul clearly seems to have a specific group of people in mind as he says this. He says he's told the Philippians about them before. This isn't a new thing. Over the 10 years he's known them, Paul has told them that there are other people who talk about Jesus who they should stay away from. Now, Paul doesn't tell us who these people are. I mean, it would have been really convenient if he had said, yeah, stay away from that Rob guy. He's going to get you into trouble. But Preston, he's, he's okay. You'll do well with him. There's a lot of debate about who Paul has in mind here. But something that does seem really clear to me is the fact that Paul knew these people. He says he has tears in his eyes as he thinks about them. These just aren't just some random people that he's heard about who are going around and saying some weird thing. Paul seems to know them. He has an emotional reaction as he thinks about them. The sadness he feels towards them. It's almost as though he had mentored them or invested into them in some way. Like he, knew, he thought that they should know better. These are people that he probably spent some time with. And perhaps they still had some claim to follow the ways of Christ. But Paul had seen something shift in them. And their allegiance to Jesus had changed. They started to compromise their beliefs, and either saying they needed some, something more than just the cross of Christ to forgive them of their sins, or, or saying that there were other ways to get right with God beside the cross, or, or maybe they'd even denied this idea of sin altogether. They scorned the good news of Jesus, saying either his salvation wasn't enough, or saying Jesus' salvation was just one option among many. And it grieved Paul to reflect on their journey with faith. These are examples of people who might still say they are standing firm, but Paul saw right through them. In their life and in their practice, they had walked away from Jesus. I remember once hearing one of my professors, uh, Sarah Williams, uh, speak into this a little bit. Uh, Sarah is a, a professor of history and often teaches at Regent College. Uh, and I remember her once going off on a tangent mid-lecture, which is how she does things, and she mentioned a verse from Corinthians where Paul says that Christians are the aroma of Christ. Christians were meant to have this, this sweet fragrance of life to us. And she went on to say that sometimes she come across Christians who, it's like they just don't smell right. Not because they forgot their deodorant, but because there's something off with them. There's like a spiritual rottenness about them. 
Paul's warning us, not everyone is a good example for us to follow. There are some people who mean really well, but the outworking of their beliefs and practices causes them to deny the cross and to lead us away from following Jesus. And just really quickly, um, just a little note here. There are leaders who will lead us away from Jesus, but I'm also aware that sometimes there are people who also push us away from Jesus too. Uh, Elsewhere in Philippians, Paul talks about beware of the dogs. And I think it's a similar idea that he's getting at there. He's saying that there are people who will lead in ministry, who will go after you in certain ways and do something to push you away from Jesus. And I think there are some people in our church who have experienced something like that, where someone misrepresented Jesus to you. And if that's you, I want to say to you today that I am so sorry that happened to you. I'm so sorry that someone standing up like this once told you something wrong about Jesus. And I recognize that it might be hard to trust someone like me standing up here in the lights. But can I invite you today to enter trying to rediscover God's goodness? Can can I invite you to learn how Jesus invites you Keep holding on to him. Paul says to stand firm in our faith, we should join together to follow the examples of other Christians who are still holding firmly onto Jesus. So what's the mark of someone who is standing firm in their faith? What's that thing, that trait which we can pursue and hold on to so that we can also persevere in our faith? In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, we read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is at the very core of what Paul's saying here about how to stand firm. He says his citizenship is in heaven, and he's eagerly waiting on Jesus. It's simultaneously a beautiful answer, which also seems a bit vague and almost too simple. For the Philippians, their neighbors were suspicious of them. Their clients were taking their business elsewhere because they objected to their religious beliefs. Their society was slowly ostracizing them. They wanted to know how to stand firm in their faith and persevere amidst the discomfort and hardship. They wanted to know how to live as faithful followers of Jesus in their city, to live in their city with their neighbors and to love their city to life. And at first glance, Paul's answer feels kind of like a letdown doesn't look like he's answering their question, but has kind of come up with this escapist and wishful way of thinking. What's the deal, Paul? Did you bump your head too many times in those shipwrecks? How did you come up with what looks like a pithy little spiritual answer? I think Paul has a bit more in mind than just a pithy little spiritual answer. For him, being a citizen of heaven And eagerly waiting on Jesus is something concrete and tangible. So what I want to do now is I want to look at each of these two things in turn. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven and how do we eagerly await Jesus? The first thing Paul says is his citizenship is in heaven. The word citizenship would have been a really loaded term for the Christians in Philippi to hear. If you remember, the city of Philippi is this Roman colony. The city had this strong allegiance to Rome and the people who were born there were granted Roman citizenship. It's like being given the legal and military protection of 
the world's leading superpower. For them, they belonged to Rome, and this meant that their allegiance was to Caesar. That's why they had public festivals where they worshipped Caesar. And for the average resident in Philippi, the most important thing about them was that they belonged to Rome. And now Paul comes along and says to this church in this city, that may be the case for them, but that's not true about you. As a follower of Jesus, your place of belonging is somewhere else. And he uses this word citizenship. It carries with it this idea of a place or a location in which you not only have the right to be a citizen, but it's the place or the location where you belong. There's a claim of identity and belonging made upon the life of every Christian. It's the claim of heaven on you. Heaven is our primary identity of belonging. It's as if Paul is saying we're foreigners on our own homeland. We belong to a different kingdom. Our allegiance is to a different king. Our citizenship is in heaven. But really quickly, does that mean that we shouldn't be interested and invested in what's happening here on earth? I mean, if we belong to heaven, does that mean we should just give up and try to make a difference in the world around us? If we focus on heaven, does that mean that we can just forget about the earth because it's all going to just burn and just be destroyed? And we're not a part of that. We're going to go float off in the clouds. I really appreciate how C.S. Lewis thinks about this and what he has to say on it. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a professor at Oxford. And while he's probably best known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, he was also one of the most important Christian thinkers in the 20th century. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he writes, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, that is heaven, that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Being a citizen of heaven isn't escapist. And belonging to heaven doesn't mean that we should disengage from the world around us. In fact, belonging to heaven is the surest way for heaven to calm down and touch earth. Being a citizen of heaven, holding fast to the claim that heaven makes on us, is the surest way for God's love to come and change the world. After all, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a good thing for us to dwell on heaven. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Our allegiance is with heaven. We belong to heaven. Heaven has made its claim on us. In Ephesians 2.19, Paul explains, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are fellow citizens with saints. We belong to heaven just as equally as the saints belong to heaven. 
But if you think about that, does, does that mean that Paul's putting us on, on the same level as saints? Are, are we on equal footing with saints? I mean, that seems a little weird, doesn't it? Saints are like these really holy people. I think of Mother Teresa or St. Francis of Assisi. These people who have lived exemplary lives of faith. And they're holy and they're devout and they're just on this other level. How are we on equal footing with them? Whenever Paul writes one of his letters to a church, he always begins it in the exact same way. In Romans 1, we read, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Second Corinthians, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. And in Philippians, where we're reading from today, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with, with the overseers and deacons. Do you see who Paul's writing to? He's writing the letters to the churches in all these different cities, and he's writing to all the saints along with the people who are leading those churches, the deacons, the overseers, the pastors, along with all the leaders, he's writing to the saints. So here's a question. If Paul were to write a letter to us here at St. Peter's Fireside, how would he address his letter? I think it would be something to the effect of to all the saints at St. Peter's Fireside, along with all your pastors and your staff grace and peace to you. Now, what does that mean about you? What's Paul calling you? He's calling you a saint. Bernice, you're a saint. Tyler, you're a saint. Gaius, you're a saint. You're a citizen of heaven because you're a saint of heaven. Jesus Christ has made each and every one of you one of his saints. And maybe you don't feel like a saint. Maybe that title feels uncomfortable for you. Maybe you don't feel good enough to be a saint, or you, have, you aren't feeling devoted enough to Jesus to carry that name, saint. But when has the gospel of Jesus Christ ever been about what you've done? When has following Jesus ever been about earning or deserving his love? Never. We're saved by grace, not merit. We don't earn it. We're forgiven our sins out of love, not because we bounced them out with good deeds. We've been made holy ones, saints of heaven, solely because of what Jesus has done for us. Our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus is claiming you as his own. The first thing Paul says about how we stand firm in our faith is that our citizenship is in heaven. We're his saints, Christ's saints. And then he says the second thing is that we eagerly wait on Jesus. So let's quickly turn to unpack this second thing. In verse 20, we read, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, 
will transform our bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul says that we eagerly await a savior from heaven. It doesn't say that we're just to wait around, twiddling our thumbs and scrolling on our feeds like we would when we're waiting for the bus or sitting in the seat in the doctor's office. He's not talking about waiting for life to pass us by. It's an eager waiting. I remember when I was a little, uh, the, the eagerness I would feel before Christmas. There was a joy and a hope and an excitement about Christmas for me. And I was that kid who would annoy my parents because I'd wake up at like four or five in the morning just to run down and open the presents, and they wouldn't let me. But not because I'd set an alarm to wake up at 5 a.m., but because I was so excited that my body wouldn't let me sleep any longer. I had this giddiness about me to wake up and experience this joyous, wonderful day. Paul isn't talking about waiting for something to happen. He says he waits eagerly. To wait eagerly for something, that there needs to be something about that thing that captures us and excites us and captivates us. There's something to hope for and to look forward to. Paul says that there's something Jesus is up to that is captivating and exciting. Paul has a hope about him, a hope which marks him and which feels sure and steady. There's something exciting about Jesus' plan, his endgame. Paul's giddy with excitement for the day that Christ will return. So what is this hope? It's a vision for the work that Christ is doing in the world, for the work that Christ is doing in us. In Romans 8, we read, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We live in a world that is longing for healing. The whole of our creation is in bondage to corruption. The creation, our climate, our planet, our ecosystem is in bondage to corruption. The created order, our societies, civilizations, and cultures, they're in bondage to corruption. And even the creatures of this world, you and me and the relationships we have with each other, they're in bondage to corruption. It's a corruption that has cut us off from the very presence of God. And this corruption that the Bible speaks about is called sin. It's not merely just doing bad things and behaving immorally. That's just the outworking of sin. Sin in its fullest sense is the perversion of the created order of the world. It's the defilement of all things and the rejection of the presence and glory of God. And Jesus has come to free us from that bondage. Jesus' saints, we who follow Jesus, have been freed from the bondage of sin. We've been forgiven our corruption of heart and soul and mind. And we've been restored into relationship with God. That restoration is what God's doing even now. Jesus is reconciling the world to himself and he's renewing everything. And he's at work to free the whole of his creation from the bondage to corruption. We long for the full coming of Jesus because he's coming to finish what he began on the cross and what he put into motion at his resurrection on the day of Pentecost when he sent his spirit. 
we read, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. He will transform our bodies that they will be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Jesus' power is the power that spoke the whole of creation into being. It's the power that forgives sins. It's the power that dealt with your sin and my sin upon the cross. It's the power that rose Jesus from the grave. The power that enables Jesus to bring everything under his control is the power that defeats sin and death. It's a power God wields not to destroy, but to create and remake. It's a power Jesus uses not to threaten us, but to breathe forth life into us. By the power that enables Jesus to bring everything under his control, to not only make the world, but also to heal it and remake it. He will transform this world by that power, and he will transform even us to participate in the fullness of his beauty and presence. It's a restoration of the creation that we can't even begin to fully comprehend. Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The hope of heaven coming to earth is far greater than anything we could ever begin to imagine. At best, we just catch glimpses of it through this dark, dim mirror. But Jesus is renewing everything, and his coming and making all things new is beautiful and exciting. He's renewing our world, our city, its people. He's renewing you and me. And even now, we can eagerly await with giddy joy and anticipation the renewing work that Jesus is coming to bring. Because just as we get to be his saints here and now, so too can we join him in seeing his renewal come to earth here and now. Paul's cultivating within us this intense hope. Do you want to stand firm in your faith? Then hear this and let it sink deep down into your bones today. Jesus Christ has made you his own. You belong to him. And when he looks at you, he calls you saint. He calls you his saint. And Jesus is alive, and he's renewing everything. And he's going to come back, and he's going to restore all of creation. It's all going to be made well. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Stand firm as citizens of heaven, eagerly awaiting our Savior. Will you bow your heads and pray with me?